I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Murder. On today's episode of Moving Past Murder, we are going to discuss a subject that has haunted me, interested me, and intrigued me, and also perplexed me. It really didn't come to major prevalence into my life until I made the film Murder in Mansfield. Now that said, I've been very well aware of this particular subject and its interest, but it was a murder in Mansfield when I was traveling around doing film festivals and speaking at universities and things of that nature. TED Talk, which hopefully you've seen, and if not, you should go to the TED website. Nonetheless, this is something that has is a very sensitive subject for me and very near and dear to my heart. And that is specifically people's obsession with true crime. Now, I feel that I add a very unique perspective to this particular subject because I view it through a very unique lens. And that lens is as a victim of a heinous crime, the murder of my mother by my father when I was 11 years old, having witnessed that crime and subsequently testifying against my father when I was 12 years old. And that testimony is what led to his eventual incarceration for which he is still incarcerated to this day. This is Friday, December 10th, 2021, and he is still in prison for the murder of my mother. One of the things that I've always been interested in is not only the consequences and the legacies of violence, but are just insatiable, <laughs> I think is the right word to use in this situation, our insatiable appetite for true crime and our obsession over it. And it is not something that I have really obsessed over my entire life, other than the fact that it has been the majority of my life since I've been 11 years old. And I'm just genuinely fascinated with how people are consumed by this. I mean, I grew up reading Agatha Christie novels. Who didn't want to be Hercule Poirot? But there are hundreds, if not thousands, of true crime podcasts out there. Uh, every time I turn on Netflix or Hulu or any other streaming service, it seems that there is a new true crime series for one to digest. <laughs> and I, I wouldn't say notorious is the right word, but one of the most famous and successful true crime series is called Forensic Files. Forensic Files went off the air in 2011, but it had a massive resurgence on Netflix. And when that streaming service really rose to popularity, and especially during the pandemic in the last two years, it seemed that they were constantly promoting this show on there. The episode about the murder of my mother by my father is one of the most popular. I believe it is episode number 43 in the Forensic Files true crime series or franchise. So our guest, Rebecca Reisner, 
uh, reached out to me initially because she is writing a book for Prometheus Books about the 40 most popular episodes of Forensic Files. And it just so happens that mine is uh, top of the list. <laughs> it's one of the top episodes. So um, I don't know whether that's a good or a bad thing, but it is definitely uh, something that is a fact. And she wanted to know if I could give my commentary. She had followed the documentary and um, had interviewed other people, reporters that were involved in the case and, and members of the police department for her blog over the years about the case. And um, she wanted to talk to me. And I was like, I, I will absolutely talk to you. And uh, as listeners of this podcast know, I'm no stranger to giving my opinion on things. <laughs> and um, so I was very eager to speak with her. And I said, would you do me a favor? Would you be on my podcast? And she said, of course. So without further ado, I would like to welcome our guest, Rebecca Reisner, to the program. So Rebecca, I know you obviously from your blog, Forensic Files Now. That's right. I started it in 2016. You have a journalism background. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I've been a copy editor, editor, and writer at magazines and newspapers for most of my career. And I always kind of found myself working um, working in a section that I'm not naturally interested. I kind of fell into business journalism a few years ago. And anyway, I found myself in much of my career writing and editing content that I'm not naturally interested in. Um, not something that I would probably read on my own. And I wanted to just do something uh, that would enable me to write the way I wanted and um, write about something that I was genuinely interested in and had opinions about. And I've always liked true crime. So, and I, I love the show Forensic Files. As an editor, I find the composition and um, the scripts to be very well structured. I admire that. And so I and the um, the show went off the air in 2011. They brought they produced I think 400 episodes, and they're still shown all over the world all the time in syndication. So I thought, let me go. I, I'm when I watch the show, I would often find myself googling the names. I wanted to find out, you know, what happened to the murder victim's son which you can, <laughs> you know, what you know is this person still in jail. Um, and I was hoping that there were others who, you know, were in the same uh, same situation, and, and there are. It's, um, you know, my traffic is it's been great, and um, yeah, there are lots of others out there like me. I found. So, your interest in forensic files brought us to cross paths. Yeah, because I'm doing the book, I reached out to you to see if you would, you know, talk to me a little bit one on one, and I was so thrilled that you wanted to, and yeah, so here we are. You had discovered the, you you know me through the Forensic Files episode, but you hadn't seen the documentary A Murder in Mansfield, yes? You know, I'm not sure when I actually saw it. Um, I'm sh I must, I, clearly I must have seen your Forensic Files before uh, the documentary came out in 2017, 2018. Yeah, 2018. I, watch, I watched it before calling you. I, I, you know, I've watched it a couple times. And, uh, you know, I use some of it in my blog post uh, about Forensic Files version of your story. Obviously, you were a true crime fan, feeling sort of uh, unfulfilled, I guess, for that sort of uh, <laughs> the, 
the amateur sleuth side of you and uh, the true crime obsession. And so you, you broke into doing the blog because of your interest. This is a very common theme that I'm finding through uh, the female demographic. When I made the, made the film A Murder in Mansfield, I had no idea until I went to the actual film festival screenings and things of that nature where, um, you know, I, I, I was kind of always like, who watches this stuff? And then I was like, oh, wow, it's a predominantly female audience, which I kind of found interesting and slightly disturbing, not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> in all fairness, I have many friends who are true crime fans and who are uh, very in, into true crime, who are, who are men, and, and, and I was like, oh, I never knew that. And they're like, oh, yeah, bro, we're so into it. I don't know. Um, what, what do you think? I, I guess one of the things for me is being a survivor of true crime or, you know, I don't like to think of myself as a victim, and I, and I definitely don't. Uh, but for lack of a better word, I am a victim. And so for me, the, the whole true crime obsession thing is just a, is a mystery because it's been just my life. And if I had to choose anything other, I would, you know, I wouldn't want to be wrapped into that uh, by but choice. Yes. Yeah, I know. I'm here by choice. Yeah, I don't know what it, it, why women like it, watch more. Um, The creator of Forensic Files, Paul Dowling, told me that a lot of the audience the show gets um, consists of women who look at it as a safe, they, they get safety tips on how to protect their daughters. They, you know, they like to see the situations in which uh, murder and, and other violent crime can happen. And, um, you know, it, it enables them, I guess, to uh, uh, whatever, if you prepare their daughters for to be in, um, you know, less, uh, to try to make lives worse. But specifically, just not even women, what do you think it is, because it, it, this is what I'm really interested in. What do you specifically think that people in general, why they're so obsessed with true crime? Is it because there's, because when we were doing our interview the other day, you had mentioned people are very interested in um, affluent people that commit these crimes or are victims of these crimes uh, because it's almost passe that someone of a lower social class or economic class, that this is sort of more commonplace. There's a lot more domestic violence, I think, or we presume that there is more domestic violence disputes, things of that nature. But when it happens to someone who is more affluent or from a good community or good social standing, it ends up being uh, of interest to viewers. Extrapolate a little bit upon that, if you wouldn't mind. It's just, it's the ultimate Chad and Floyd. Um, I'll give you an example. I live in a very middle-class apartment building, uh, but up on the roof, there's a penthouse um, which is um, many, many more square. I think, I think their terrace is bigger than my whole apartment. And the people who have it, um, they bought a couple apartments below them and they renovated them to make their penthouse even bigger. And I see these people in the elevator all the time. And, you know, they're very nice about saying, hi, how are you? And talking about the weather. But there's no way they are ever going to invite me over to their house. And if I ask them in the elevator, gee, how can you guys afford all those renovations? I mean, they would climb through the trap door to get away from me. 
But when rich people like them, I mean, they haven't committed any crimes. When rich people commit crimes, we get to go into their homes via the police footage, the, you know, the, the video, and we get to learn about the underpinnings of their financial life. Um, you know, we find out how much they have, how much in debt they are. And it's, it's you know, it's, it makes us feel a little bit better about our own lives. You know, you know, I live in a tiny apartment, but the cops can't come in here and search. Nobody's accused me of murder and insurance fraud. Um, so yeah, that, that's one of the appeals, I think. That's very interesting that you say that. Huh, I never really thought of it that way. I mean, of course I wouldn't think of it that way. For me, I, I kind of realized the, the backstory of, you know, my situation, which was my father was viewed as a wealthy physician, but he had only started making money in a couple of years before the murder happened. I mean, we moved from Virginia where he was a, you know, he was a doctor on a naval base at a naval hospital. He was not a flight surgeon as his, you know, rampant stories and lies and, 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 uh, say, but yeah, I, I, when you say the Schadenfreude thing, it, it, it's interesting because the obsession with the affluence. The, there's a, a a film, a, a fantastic film, which is one of my favorites that's ever been made. It's called Quiz Show, directed by Robert Redford. And there's a line in it when they're talking about says to him, they didn't tune in to watch the questions; they tuned in to watch the money. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I, I guess when I look at things like when I think about reality television shows like Big Brother or Survivor, things like that, I feel like or you know who wants to be a millionaire or whatever you pick the show that's on television, right? I, I think about when there's any sort of cash prize that people are really just in tune to see, oh, how much money can they win? So they're watching the money. But I wouldn't think it would be that way for true crime. I'm when I watch things that interest me and a lot of my things that I that I'm obsessed with are mostly political. I will say, uh, or or authoritarian regimes. I'm very obsessed with like North Korea and secret societies and things of that nature, because I want to know the secrets. I don't really care about how much money they have. Like that doesn't ever occur to me. But it's interesting. Uh, so that that is a big appeal to that. Yeah, that's, that's one of them, definitely. Um, now there's <laughs> there are also the other kind of Schadenfreude is you might be familiar with the the case of Molly and Clay Daniels. Um, he's the one they, they faked his, his burning death in a car, um, to get insurance money. Then he, he hid out for a while and then he dyed his hair black and came back and Molly, his wife started introducing him as her new boyfriend. You know, this is, this is how dumb they are. He, he thought he could, yeah, he thought he could fake his own death and, um, and come back and, um, Anyway, so those we just kind of like to chuckle at. Oh my goodness, well, you know how stupid can you be? Um, but but here's it's interesting you said that because and as we were talking about the other day, with the case of my father and when I when I've reflected back on the case with Dave Messmore, the the lead investigator who I became very close with, and ultimately it was between him and I that this whole thing even got solved. You know that 25 days between my mother's disappearance and them finding the body. I found the, the, the Polaroid of the house, told him about it. That's where they found it. I'm the one that, you know, he believed me because everyone was treating it as a missing persons case, but he's like, there's something with this kid. It's his assistant that his mother is missing and she's dead and, and his father did it. And it, um, 
it's interesting to me because I, I, I love those little nuances, but one of the things that he mentioned to me is he said, you know, my, and he says this in the documentary, he says, you know, my father's attitude was very much like, uh, oh, these dumb police aren't going to figure this out. You know, they're just too stupid. And I think that ultimately, I think what, what convicts a lot of these people in these cases, I mean, there's a case right now that's before us where a, a gentleman is accused of staging a racial hate crime against him. And he's an actor in Hollywood and, and everyone is anxiously awaiting for the verdict and whatnot. But it, it, it seems that a lot of these crimes, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because maybe this has to do with also the level of affluence, is these people feel that they can perpetrate these crimes because they're smarter than everyone. Like, just like this guy, I was burned alive in a car, and then <laughs> I'm going to come back, dye my hair, not get it... You know, not get a nose job, not have my teeth done, not have like wear fake contact lenses to change my eye color, get my hair dyed black. And as someone who used to dye his hair black, <laughs> I can tell that pretty much people look at me with my darker hair, then they see how my hair is now, which is its natural color. They go, oh, but you look like this. I recognize you, you're the same guy. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty unlikely. Um, yeah, people aren't. It, it, actually, especially with this guy, Clay Daniels, he, uh, you know, he needed a lot of dental work, he had very lots of gaps between, you know, you don't see mouths like that every day. Um, getting back to, to what you said specifically. Yeah, a lot of people think they are smarter than the police. Or um, they also think that because they've never really broken the law before in their lives, you know, they've you know, they're, maybe they're a doctor or a lawyer or uh, someone who faithfully goes to church and is, is um, active in the community, that they can get away with one a murder because no one would suspect them and they wouldn't be looked into at all. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a case in Canada that happened in Canada where a local doctor whom everyone loved, he was very kind, and uh, he helped raise funds to get the little community a public swimming pool. It was a little town in, I think, Saskatchewan called Kipling. And meanwhile, he raped a, one of his patients on an, an examining table. He drugged her and raped her. And, you know, no one, in, with him at work, no one believed the accuser that this happened. Um, you know, he's this great guy and, and she does, she's someone who didn't have a lot of money or status in the community. And um, so, yeah, you know, he thought he could get away with it. Yeah, it's 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 staggering. I mean, raping, drugging and raping someone on the table. And why do you think that these and look, you know, you're not a, um, a forensic psychologist or a, uh, a or a criminal investigator, but you are someone who who has a lot of experience in watching these shows and listening to people's stories and interviewing people about them like myself. Uh you know, why does it have to be murder? Why does it have to go to so Why can't they start off with like a petty crime, like shoplifting, for example? <laughs> I, that's great. Yeah, I don't know why um, why they do that. Now, th there is one thing that I do notice turns regular people into murders um, often, which is a child custody dispute. Um, in fact, I believe with your case, that was one of the things that 
the factors that he didn't want to, your father didn't want to have to fight for you and your younger sister. Now that you mentioned that, that wasn't really a motive for, for my father. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, well, I think that it was a narrative that people used and people do use. And I think like a show like Forensic Files say, oh, there was this bitter custody battle. Oh, there was this bitter this. Something that Dave Messmore told me at the time, or at, I'm sorry, after the fact, after the trial and everything, probably a couple of years later, is he said, you know, it was more likely that your mother would try to murder your father. Because she wasn't going to... Because the way that his lawyers were lining up everything in the divorce, he had all the money she and he had therefore all the power even though what he did you know impregnating his girlfriend all these things my mother my mother was very i remember my mother being very upset and i it wasn't until i um, made the film a murder in mansfield i was doing pre-production did i find out that my mother who had graduated from university of pennsylvania school of dentistry to become a dental hygienist right she supported my father when he was in medical school and then my mother did all the accounting and the books for my father and helped keep the business on track for when he entered private practice when we came to Mansfield, Ohio. And then she kind of got rug pulled, obviously, with the pregnancy and the, the affairs and things like that. And then rug pulled again where she might not be getting as much alimony because he was going to fight her tooth and nail over it. And of course, he has all the money that she, in effect, helped him earn. <laughs> so, you know, when I found this out from my father's sister, that he had, um, that she had supported him through medical school. I was I was kind of floored because I never knew that. And Dave Messmore saying, you know, hey, the, the, it, it just didn't make any sense because he had enough money. He was almost making $300,000 a year when he was arrested or about to make that kind of money in a small town in Ohio in 1990. That's a lot of money uh, when a house can be purchased for 50 grand. It, it wouldn't have been an issue for him. But the, the notion that my father was motivated by maintaining custody of myself or my sister who he didn't even want my he wanted my mother to send back to china is fanciful. but but it's interesting that, that narratives like that develop even though they're not necessarily based in fact because i think i think personally having gone through all of this it's a way for us to justify the actions of the perpetrator if we humanize it like oh he really wanted the kid so he's not a psychopath he was really fighting for something he believed in, right? Yeah, they, I, I agree. Sometimes we do use that to justify why the person did this, you know, why someone who is like you and me and seems like an upstanding citizen would do this. Um, but there are many other cases where um, somebody wanted custody and, um, you know, just didn't want the other spouse to get it, you know, because... You know, our relationships with our parents and, and between parents and kids, there's there's nothing more important or, or closer to us. And, you know, people, parents all the time say that I would, I would kill for my child. I'd take a bullet for my child, you know. Sure. And sometimes, unfortunately, it extends into I, I would kill my spouse to make sure that I get full custody of, of my child. So, uh, yeah. It, that wasn't a read on previous cases or, or other people. I'm just saying, I think that we, I think in order to justify such heinous crimes or heinous actions, we definitely have to sort of pinpoint a rationale and, and, and sort of bring it close to home. Like I would do that for my child. I would do that for my spouse. I would do that for my lover. I would do that. I would do that for my mom, my dad, whatever it is. I, I feel like there has to be a little of that humanization sometimes when things are so horrific. Yes, that's a really good point.
So when you're writing this book and you had said that my the episode about me or and my family was like one of the top ones, is that correct? Yeah, it's got an 11,000 page views uh, so far. And the, the blog posts that I wrote about, about your case. Um, yeah, and it is, um, this is kind of a delicate thing because I'm talking about your parents, but. No, please do, please be objective. No, be objective. You have a, uh, a doctor who, um, you know, is perceived as very successful. The, I think the house in Erie um, was quite, it was a mansion, you know, it looked huge. Yeah, oh yeah. And, you know, you have a mother who kind of looks like Audrey Hepburn and is a little bit of a Holly Golightly. You know, she kind of rose socially or, you know, rose up. And, you know, people are, for what people, they, they're very interested in good looking people. That's, uh, it's not, not really fair that they care more, but, but they do. <laughs> and, you know, that's a factor. Yeah. So what are some of the other, so you mentioned the, this guy with the fake, the uh, the fake, fake being burned alive. Uh, what are some other cases with forensic files? I've never really watched the show. I've seen parts of my own episode, uh, obviously in making the film and using snippets for sort of media that I've put together at times, but I've never sat down and watched the whole thing, you know. And, and why have you never watched that episode? Take that back. Uh, a funny story that no one knows. I had just arrived in Los Angeles and I was uh, a model at the time. This was like 2004. And I was dating a girl who was also a model who I had met and we were having a relationship and we were sitting on the couch and she had television. I never had television at the time and I, I still don't actually. But she had cable and we're flipping through the channels and it, it stops and, it's, and I recognize it instantaneously, it's me on the witness stand talking with my blue eyes and everything. And she flips through it and then she stops and she just kind of looks over at me like, wait, what was that? And then backs up, but she didn't even know my story. Oh, and wow. And she backs it up and there's me on the witness stand. And then she's like, <laughs> doing one of these like double takes. Like, I don't believe it. I'm just kind of like. There yep. I am. Oh, wow. That's me. I kind of, because when I came here, I didn't really tell a lot of people my story just because it was like, I didn't, I, I think I was always sort of, um, insecure about it in a way that I didn't want people to, I had grown up being known for that. I wanted to start out fresh in a new location with a new life and not have that be like a, a cliff note or a little asterisk by my name. Like, Oh yeah, he's the Boyle kid. He's the kid who's dad killed his mom and if I could not be known for that, this is why I, I chose the name, you know, you wrote in the article, he goes by Landry and I had said to you, you know, Landry is my middle name on my birth certificate. And my mother would always call me Collier Landry, especially if I was in trouble. And I know that she wouldn't have exactly approved of me going off to Hollywood to be an artist, even though she was very supportive of my artistic side as a child. But I don't think she, I think she wanted me to be a lawyer, really, uh, and, and make money and have a good good career and not uh, choose the arts. <laughs> so I did that to kind of pay homage to, to her, you know, and I didn't even think about this until you mentioned it. Uh, you know, we were talking about seeing the episode. Wow, and so she recognized you from when you were 12 years old. And to be honest with you, when I watched A Murder in Mansfield in the theaters in New York, when we were at Doc NYC, I was watching myself on the witness stand. I was just sitting there going, you know, my God, I, I haven't changed a bit. 
Yeah, the same. same. I'm the same person, same outgoing, really? loquacious, and just yeah, I, I just have that sort of. I don't know. I, I would like to think it's charm, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, you're congenial and personal. Yeah. So how how long have you had the blog for? Uh, since 2016, so five years. 2016. So, so even a show like Forensic Files, that is, I know it's replayed ad nauseum on, I mean, because I see it all the time on Netflix. Things like this just seem to live on in our memory. And then you mentioned you live in a building in New York City. So is it only murders in the building? Because I know that's a, that's a show now that people are very into. Yeah, I have, everybody keeps telling me to watch that show. I haven't seen it yet. It's a very nice building I live in. They, um, it's been in a lot of movies because the facade is uh, kind of elegant. It's from, I guess, the Art Deco period. Cool. But no, we haven't had any. <laughs> I don't think there've been any murders in my neighborhood. <laughs> so, well, that's a good. Rebecca, is there anything else you want to tell our viewers or listeners about the book, about what you're doing next, what, what's what's going on? Um, sure. Yeah, it's uh, well, my blog. It's uh, forensicfilesnow.com, and um, I basically do updates uh, to episodes of Forensic Files, and also one of the things about this book, my editor wants to make sure it's it's interesting to people who don't watch the show. And so I do give the whole background of the case. I go back, I, I recap it, and then I put in extra facts from my own research uh, to make it more interesting and, and give updates. So yeah, that's my blog, ForensicFilesNow.com. And the book is tentatively called Forensic Files Now, Updates to 40 Favorite Cases. And that's from uh, Prometheus Books. Rebecca Reisner, thank you so much for your time and for being a guest. I really appreciate everything. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you all for tuning into the podcast. Well, that was a really interesting and enlightening conversation with Rebecca Reisner, our guest today. I really thank her for her contribution to the today's program. You can find her blog at ForensicFilesNow.com to read about other episodes besides me and my family's episode and look out for her book, which will be released by Prometheus Books, third or fourth quarter, 2022. So I'm very much looking forward to that. Yours truly is obviously giving an interview in the book. I want to thank all of our listeners and want to remind you all to please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible. Find us on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash Collier Landry. A little bit about my life on there, my true crime history, and then obviously episodes of the podcast. I'm Collier Landry. This is Moving Past Murder. Thanks, y'all. If you have a story you'd like to share on our podcast, please visit movingpastmurder.com for more information. The film A Murder in Mansfield is available on Investigation Discovery, Discovery Plus, and Amazon Prime Video. This podcast is a production of Don't Touch My Radio in association with RSA Entertainment.